Sound and Memory Approaching the Holocaust Through Music Hello and welcome to the podcast. My name is Ian Biddle. This series of podcasts will cover a range of topics relating to sound, music and the Holocaust. Throughout the podcast series, we'll be asking some questions about how music was made by victims of the Holocaust, why they continue to make music under such appalling conditions, and why a refusal to give up the status of cultural beings was so pronounced among the victims. The podcast is designed so you can listen along whilst doing other things. In today's podcast we ask, why should a Holocaust scholar learn Yiddish? In his extraordinary book, Sounds of Defiance, Alan Rosen argues strongly for a view of the world inside the camps and ghettos as linguistically pluralist. This makes sense because, if you think about it, the ghettos become holding centres for members of radically distinct communities thrown together against their will. Indeed, one of the demands made on anyone who wants to study the Holocaust is how to negotiate this linguistic complexity. So what languages were spoken in the ghettos and camps in what David Rousset referred to in 1946 as the concentrationary universe, l'univers concentrationnaire? The languages of the camps and ghettos are not uniformly present everywhere. For example, in the camps in the West you are most likely to have heard French, German, Dutch and sometimes Spanish or Italian among the inmates. In the East, where the vast majority of killing camps were located, one heard local languages mixed with languages from all over Europe – Hungarian, Romanian, German, Polish, Ukrainian, Russian, Lithuanian, Latvian and, of course, Yiddish. In fact, Yiddish was the first or near-first language of the largest group of Jewish victims and therefore the largest single language community of all. Yiddish would have been heard in the larger of the eastern ghettos such as Łódź, Warsaw, Kovna and Vilna. There, the local Jewish population would have been bilingual, speaking both the host language of the non-Jewish communities and Yiddish. More assimilated Jews would have eschewed Yiddish in favour of the host language, for example Polish, Lithuanian, Ukrainian and so on. Nevertheless, of the six million Jews murdered in the Holocaust, some four million, this is of course a rough estimate, would be first language or very good second language Yiddish speakers. This then places Yiddish in a unique place among the languages of the victims. It functions as a unique language of experience. So before I begin to answer today's headline question, why Holocaust scholars should learn Yiddish, let me begin by saying a few things about Yiddish as it is actually spoken today. Contrary to many extinction stories, Yiddish is spoken all over the world. Some estimates count nearly one million native speakers, whilst others have it closer to 750,000. If we include high-functioning second language speakers in this, the estimate rises to between one and a half and two million speakers. If we compare this to the 11 million speakers of Yiddish before the Holocaust, we see that Yiddish was almost wiped out in Europe by the Nazis. This, we might say, was the first death of Yiddish. 
but there have been other deaths of Yiddish as well. Often referred to as the second death, in North America Yiddish had been declining well before the Holocaust and, like many vernacular immigrant languages, many first language speakers did not want to teach their children that language and generations became ever more assimilated to US monolingual English culture. This second death then intensifies after the Holocaust and saw a rapid decline of first language Yiddish speakers in North America to the point where, in the late 1970s, it was declared an endangered language. But there is also a third death. In the last years of the British Mandate of Palestine and the first few decades of the State of Israel, Yiddish was viewed with extraordinary hostility by many Zionists, although it has to be said this is not a universal pattern. Zionism, remember, is simply a kind of Jewish nationalism, and like all European nationalisms, it was founded on a particular notion of what a citizen of the home state should look like. And Yiddish, frankly, as far as they were concerned, had not much of a place in that new identity. Indeed, there were riots in Israel when Yiddish-language films were shown, and those arriving to a new life in Israel after the Holocaust were discouraged from speaking Yiddish. Some called it the language of persecution, others a bobolotion or granny language, while others again referred to it as the language of Jewish weakness. This, then, was the third death of Yiddish at the hands of Hebrew-focused Zionists or Hebraists. It has to be said that things are quite different now. Yiddish as a first language is growing in both Israel and North America, especially but not exclusively in Orthodox communities such as those in Borough Park in Brooklyn or Meir She'arim in Jerusalem. So what kinds of Yiddish died and what kinds survived the Holocaust? Well, it's probably accurate to say that the numbers of secular Yiddish speakers is in radical decline. Before the Holocaust, some 40% of Yiddish speakers in Eastern Europe identified as secular or at least did not attend Jewish religious schools and rarely attended shul or synagogue. This large secular Yiddish-speaking community, many members of which were left-wing, pro-socialist or Bundist, has pretty much disappeared. But what survives is quite interesting. Many second and third generation Ashkenazi Jews with roots in Eastern Europe have started learning Yiddish formally. There is also a special variety of Yiddish called Yeshivish, in which students studying the Talmud speak a version of the language that consists of less Germanic terms and more Aramaic and Rabbinical Hebrew. There are also forms of Yiddish spoken in Orthodox communities with its own spelling system. Much of the Yiddish spoken in the United States in Orthodox communities is also heavily influenced by American English. For example, the word you sometimes hear for window, which you'd expect to be fenster, is winde. So the Yiddish spoken in Eastern Europe before the Holocaust was different from that spoken now in North America and Israel. And it's worth noting also that Israeli Yiddish is also heavily influenced by American English. So it is this pre-war idiolect of Yiddish that interests me most because it is diverse, eloquent and sophisticated, and also expresses an extremely wide variety of different kinds of experience, both secular and sacred. 
The Yiddish of the group of poets and artists called Jung Vilner, for example, is a highly polished modernist language, replete with elegant experimentation. Indeed, in every major metropolitan centre in most of Eastern Europe, in Romania, Poland, Ukraine, Lithuania, Latvia, Belarus, Russia, Yiddish was booming as a modern urban language. It had not quite abandoned its shtetl origins, but it was expanding the ways in which Yiddish could be used as a literary language. So if we are to truly understand the victim experience, which I believe is what we should try to do, then we need to learn Yiddish as the majority language among victim groups of the Holocaust. But we also need to learn a set of specific types of Yiddish that were spoken then. These include both highly literary and spoken idiolects, different forms of orthography, which is to say different spelling rules, an array of culturally specific local ways of viewing the world. So what exactly is Yiddish? Is it a dialect or a language? Is it like Hebrew? Is it a dying language? These questions get asked all the time and I think they represent one of the central problems Yiddish has had to face since the Holocaust. For non-Yiddish speakers, there is an extensive set of uncertainties that attend this language. First, because Yiddish is not the official language of any state, it does not have the support of a language academy. Indeed, the famous Yiddish linguist Max Weinreich famously once remarked when being pressed yet again as to whether Yiddish was a language or a dialect, a sprach is a dialect mit an armee und flot. A language is a dialect with an army and a navy, thereby humorously remarking that what determines what is a dialect and what determines what is a language is really a matter of geopolitical power. The second uncertainty is that because the language is written in the Hebrew alphabet, it is often confused with Hebrew, although the two languages are radically different from each other. This also makes searching online for Yiddish words and sources more difficult, as Google, to name just one of a number of search engines, often assumes that the language you are searching in is Hebrew. And finally, since there is no agreed standard Yiddish, readers and scholars of Yiddish have to get used to seeing lots of variant spellings. This goes far beyond the kinds of variations we see in British, North American and Australian English, for example. So then, if Yiddish is not a dialect, is not the same as Hebrew or even related to Hebrew, and does not have an agreed standard variety, what exactly is Yiddish? Yiddish is a Germanic language, most closely related to German and English, and possibly also Dutch. It shares its origins with these languages in Middle High German, a variety of German spoken from around the middle of the 9th century. Like English, it developed in isolation from Middle High German once it had split off from it and became its own language, especially as its speakers moved eastwards. Like English, and indeed most languages, it is also a hybrid language in that it borrows vocabulary from other languages such as French, 
Hebrew, Aramaic, and host Slavic languages such as Polish or Russian. The word to bless in Yiddish, for example, is benchen, and this comes from Old French via the Latin benedico, meaning I bless. The word for one's bottom in Yiddish, a slightly crude word it has to be said, is tuches or tochus, and this is a loan word from the Hebrew tachat, simply meaning underneath. Similarly, the word nudnik, a bothersome or tedious person, comes from the Polish word nudne, meaning boring, and so on. Now, it has to be said that these words don't work any longer like floating signifiers of different linguistic spaces, but have become fully integrated into Yiddish as a seamless element of the language's lexicon. We see a similar process in the English language. Take, for example, the following sentence. Quote, in order to give up alcohol, I decided to increase my daily exercise. Unquote. That's an everyday sentence, not particularly complicated. And yet, the sentence includes words from a very wide number of different languages. So, for example, in, from in order to, is a Germanic preposition from Old High German. Order is from the Norman French, ordre, and the Middle English, horder, and um, uh, uh, when it's combined with to, the Germanic preposition from Old English to and Old High German zu, we get this phrase in order to. Yeah. Then the word give up is a Germanic phrasal verb from the whole Old High German gefane and the also the old, old High German ufan. So to give up literally meaning to put to one side, to stop doing something. Of course, alcohol is from the medieval Arabic, alcohol. I, meaning me, if you like, the pronoun, um, is a Germanic pronoun, pronoun um, and it's from the Old High German, ich, I-H. Decided is from Middle French, décider or décider, um, and it's come into English via Norman French. Increase is from the Old French, Encrestre or encroistre, and from the Latin increscere. My, the um, uh, what we might call the possessional uh, pronoun, is from the Old English mina and from the Old High German mean. Daily comes from the Old English word dag and the Old High German word tag, um, and it has the adjectival suffix from. Old High German lick, which in modern English has become li. And the word exercise is from Old French and probably from Provençal, exercici, um, originally from the Latin exercitium. So here we have it, words of German, French, Latin, Arabic origin in just one simple sentence. Yiddish does exactly the same, but its languages that it borrows from are Germanic, French, Hebrew, Aramaic, and a whole range of Slavic words. So here then is that same sentence, this time in Yiddish. So the English sentence was, 
in order to give up alcohol, I decided to increase my daily exercise. The Yiddish is Kde opzulosen alcohol, hob ich anschlossen sich zu hechern mein tägliche Genietung. So, kdeitsu, in order to, comes from the Hebrew ka dei, meaning as sufficient, and tsu is the Germanic preposition from Old English to and the Old High German zu. Oplosen is to give up, stop doing something, and is from the Old High German losen. Alkohol is from the medieval Arabic alkohol. Ich, meaning I, just like the word I in English, is a Germanic pro pronoun and it comes from Old High German ich, I-H. Hob is the Germanic auxiliary verb, um, like have in English, and it's from the Old High German haben. The verb to decide in Yiddish is anschließen, um, and it comes from the Old High German sliosen, to end or finish and with the Germanic prefix ant from Old High German, meaning away from or arriving. Then we have the reflexive pronoun, zich, uh, meaning oneself, and it comes from the Old High German sich, S-I-H. We have then the verb hechern, to increase, from the Old High German ho, H-O-H. Mein, meaning my, comes from Old High German mean, just like the English word my. Teglich comes from Old High German tag, with the adjectival suffix lik, which in Yiddish becomes lich. And then we have the word genitung, which I have to be honest with you, I cannot find an origin for. So here you see, actually, Yiddish calls basically on two or three languages here. Um, the Germanic element, Arabic for that one loan word, and then um, uh, uh, that's about, about it, really. Um, and uh, there's very little French in here, no Latinate words, and genitung is uh, a, probably a Germanicized word with ung, because that's a, a very common um, suffix in German words. But it's it's interesting that this sentence, also a very regular everyday sentence in Yiddish, is far less hybrid in that sense that we meet it in terms of its uh, vocabulary. Now, this leads us to the question I raised right at the start of this podcast. Why should we learn Yiddish? Apart from the fact that Yiddish is the majority language of the victims of the Holocaust, it is also the language of the Ashkenazi Jewish experience. The word Ashkenaz comes from Hebrew and literally means Germany or the German-speaking lands. Ashkenazi Jews bore the heaviest brunt of the Holocaust with some four million Yiddish speakers murdered between 1941 and 1945. The Nazis sought to eradicate that language and its history completely. By refusing that action, by insisting on reading and understanding the language of the victims, we honour the dead and their way of life. We also get something that is priceless, a window into a way of thinking about the world that has gone forever.
So, to answer the headline question of this podcast then, as Holocaust scholars, we learn Yiddish because it's the right thing to do. Because it teaches us about the forms of expression used by the victims of the Holocaust, and because the language, frankly, is glorious. In short then, we learn Yiddish because there is nothing else to do. Without knowledge of Yiddish, we have to rely on cherry-picked partial translations, and we filter the culture and experience of the victims through the logics of English. To learn Yiddish and to read the accounts victims themselves wrote of their experiences in the ghettos and the camps in Yiddish is to go a long way to refusing the Nazis' attempts to wipe this culture off the face of the earth. If that's not a good reason to learn Yiddish, I don't know what is. Join me next time for another episode of Sound and Memory.